0: Well, good morning. Do you need to eat this book this morning, or maybe your spouse needs to eat this book this morning? Uh, don't tell them that. Uh, don't tell. Definitely, don't tell them I said that. Okay. Oh, good. I, you know, this morning, um, grateful for Tim Keller and uh, uh, Tim Mackey, especially Tim Mackey, uh, as we work through the book of Deuteronomy this morning. You know, it was it 1886? Robert Louis Stevenson uh, published his famous. I think it's famous. Uh, novella, small book uh, titled The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Maybe you've heard of this, you, you've, you've read this, seen the movie. It's, it's an interesting book. It's told through the eyes of a man named John Utterson, and this is 1886, remember. Utterson is a uh, very um, pillar to the society. But in their community, a strange man is moved in, Edward Hyde, in this this guy is like uh, evil and the epitome of vulgarity, and he he, he lurks in the shadows. And so, uh, Utterson meets with his friend Doctor Jekyll to discuss what to do about Mister Hyde. Now, what Utterson doesn't know is Doctor Jekyll is very familiar with with Hyde. Now. Henry Jekyll is, is a pillar in society as well. He's the epitome of and morality and decency and, and being a gentleman and just a fine, upstanding citizen. But when he's alone in his laboratory, in his home, he, he, he starts wondering about these other desires in his heart. And he, he, he thinks that if he can just get those out and kind of put those all in one place, uh, he, he just wonders what it'd be like to give all those full rein. And so he develops this this potion that when he, he drinks it, he becomes Mr. Hyde. And Mr. Hyde has no inhibitions. Mr. Hyde is, is, is a very vulgar and lust-oriented and mean and violent person. Now, if you were to go to Henry Jekyll's home, Dr. Jekyll is a very prestigious, impressive home. But, it, but it, the back door, though, Side door is where Mr. Hyde kind of comes in and out. He lurks in and out that way. Now, uh, a problem develops in time when uh, Henry Jekyll starts to transform into Mr. Hyde without taking the potion. It's very kind of like wrong timing and everything else. It creates some issues, but he realizes that this thing is taking over him. He can't control it. And so the potion that he had made to when he would take it, he turns back from Hyde to Jekyll. It's running low. And so he gets some more chemicals and he makes it, but it doesn't work. And so this Hyde thing kind of runs out, goes out of control. And at one point, Mr. Hyde kills somebody, and then at the end, he dies. And then John Utterson realizes the amazing truth that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are the same person. As, now, Robert Louis Stevenson is doing something really significant here. He's putting his finger... On a key part of human nature, that the human dilemma, where uh, everyone seems to be this mixture of good and evil. You know, we're all just an amorphous blob of, of right and wrong. One, one moment we'll be sincerely kind and nice, and then we can turn and be uh, mean and hurtful. We might be very generous and, and really care for people. And then, on the other hand, we might slide into a, a, a stingy sort of person. Or we might become sincerely very humble, as truthfully as it's right, and then be wrapped up in pride. And we're just all kind of this, this amalgamation of how does this work? What is this about? It's a Jekyll and Hyde thing. And if you've been reading through Eat This Book then you've been coming across a people group who are very Jekyll and Hyde-ish, right? It's the ancient Israelites. But you, you need to know that God didn't include the Israelites' story in here just because he's interested in us learning about an ancient people group. It's because we are ancient Israel. I mean, their story is our story. We we, we know that sometimes it's wrong to do, we shouldn't do it, but we do it anyway. And sometimes we know while we're doing it that this is not good, it's wrong, and we persist in doing it anyway. And this this, this Jekyll-Hyde thing kind of takes over. And a key question that you got to ask, remember this ancient Israel group, God promised them that he would bring about the salvation of the world through these guys. And he would bring about their uh, uh, deliverance of the world uh, through these guys, blessing the world through this Jekyll and Hyde sort of group of, of people. These guys who, who, one minute, as you read through Scripture, you see one, one minute, one chapter, they're, they're praising God, they're blessing God. The next minute, they're grumbling. Next minute, God's giving them manna, and they're going, oh, thank you for the manna. Next chapter, oh, well, we got us a stupid manna. But, you know, and it just goes on and on and on. Jekyll and I, Jekyll and I, Jekyll and I. We're kind of in that same boat. So how is God going to fix this? Well, enter Deuteronomy. Now, you know, turn with me in your Bibles first to the index, okay? Or table of contents. You don't find too many sermons that start off in the table of contents. But I want you to turn to the table of contents for a minute. Contents. Now, if you, if you look at the first five books of the Bible, that's, that's the Torah. Those are the books that Moses wrote. Now, just, just look at them for just a moment. You see Genesis now, the word Genesis means beginning. And so we realize that's the book where everything begins and human race begins and the world begins and God's plan is, is, begins as far as it being manifested. Uh, Genesis. Then you got Exodus. And the word Exodus means, it's like exit, to leave. And the, the, the idea is the Israelites are leaving Egypt in that book. Well, then you get Leviticus. We don't care for that book too much. But notice when you look at the, the title, is there a word that you notice, that you recognize in Leviticus? The, 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 yeah, Levi, Levites. Because Abraham's great-grandboy, Jacob, who God would rename Israel, had 12 sons. Uh, they'd be the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them, their name was Levi, and out of that family, God said, those are the people who will be priests for me. You could not be a priest if you were from the tribe of Dan or Asher or Naphtali. You had to be from Levi. But now if you were from the tribe of Levi, you could work in the tabernacle. You could be part of the sacrifices. You could teach God's word. Uh, those Only those from the tribe of Levi. Leviticus is pertaining to the Levites. We said the book of Leviticus is like a priest's manual. That's what Leviticus is. Numbers, the reason why they call it Numbers, I'm sure you found this out this past week as you're reading, is there are two different censuses in the book of Numbers. Just before they they think they're going to go into the promised land, they take a census of all the people. And then that doesn't work out. They have to wander around in the desert 40 years. A bunch of people die. Then they're going to take another census before they go in, and that's where they list all these names. You're going, for crying out loud, why can't people be named Tom, Dick, and Harry? What is it? Don't know. what. That's what you read this week. Um, numbers. And then Deuteronomy. Now, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 1. This is really the 30,000 flyover of Deuteronomy this morning it says these are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the desert east of the Jordan that is in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tafel, Leban, Hezerot, You Now you're looking at those and you're going, oh, what? It's like if, saying there's a town down there, it's by Edinburgh, so they were hanging out by Edinburgh and it's close to, to Meadsville, not too far away from Titusville. And it, it, these are towns they all knew. We, we don't know, but they all knew. It made all the sense in the world to them. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir road. In the 40th year... On the first day, the eleventh month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. Notice this: it's supposed to take eleven days to get from Sinai Horeb to the Promised Land. It took them forty years to do it. Right? Moses just kind of reminding them of something. Now, if you remember from yes last week, when they left Egypt, they came down to Mount Sinai. That's it's right down in here, right, and that's where you got. Uh, half of Exodus, and they got all the tabernacle stuff, Leviticus, that, that whole thing. They, they, they hung out for part of, of Numbers down there as well. Then what they did, they headed up to the promised land. That's, what they were, that's where they were going. That's what they were supposed to do. And they came to the front door of the promised land, and they sent the spies in. And remember the song? Twelve went out to spy on Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good. Remember this? No. And... <laughs> So they go, well, the ten come back and they say, no, 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 we shouldn't go because God can't deliver us. This is, now I know He took care of Egypt and all, but that, pff, these guys, whoa, we can't handle that. And so they said, they said, they actually said this, it would be better for us if we had have died in the desert. Bad, bad thing to say, right? Because God says, okay, go die in the desert. And so for 40 years, they wander around in the desert until the whole generation dies. Then what they do is they go up this side of the Jordan River. They're trying to fly fly under the radar, but there's two million people. You know, it's kind of difficult to fly under the radar. And so they, they bring about some attention and they end up with some skirmishes, and believe it or not, they win some of these battles. But now they're getting ready to go over into the promised land, and they're like camped right there. Okay, they're gonna cross the Jordan, they're gonna go over to the promised land. Moses wants to go over so badly. I mean, this is why he signed up for this thing in the first place, so he could take his people to the promised land. He remembers the, the, the promise to Abraham. He wants to go so badly, but God says no. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy, I'll let you find it, at one point, Moses is begging God again. God gets upset and kind of says, Moses, enough, shut up, it's done, conversation's over, you're not going, okay? It's really almost that violent. So Moses, right here, pulls all these guys together, and he says... I'm going to give you final instructions. This is like the locker room talk. They're getting ready to go out for the big game. And so Moses pulls them aside and kind of gives them his final words. This, what it says, these are the words. In Hebrew, the book, there's no book of Deuteronomy. In Hebrew, it's called the words. Because the book of Deuteronomy is just words. It's, it's hot air. It's Moses' final speeches to Israel. We call it Deuteronomy because it's second law. They say it. Basically, what he's going to do in it is he's going to rehash all those laws that you read about in Leviticus. And you're thinking, "Oh, for crying out loud! Are you sure? Really?" You need to know this. Deuteronomy is my favorite book in the Bible, and the reason why it's my favorite book in the Bible. I mean, think about this for just a moment. Moses is. uh, Just to say, you're getting ready to die, and you surround yourself with your family, people you love a lot. You're very vested in. And you're going to share with them. What are you going to share? Probably not talk about the weather. It's probably going to be pretty significant. And so Moses pulls these guys together in his final words to them from his heart. Very, very significant. And So he, he comes forth. The commands, the laws, officially start, right? Exodus 20. Remember, that's the first giving of the Ten Commandments. Very first command. You know, you should, love, or, you should have no other gods before me, right? Then he's going to follow with nine more. Then hundreds more in Exodus. You've read all those. Then hundreds more in Leviticus. You've read all those. Uh, hundred more in Numbers. You've read those. You're reading those. There'll be even more yet in Deuteronomy. But the most famous law... No, the most important law is found in Deuteronomy. This law, if you can get this one down, just this one, if you can nail this one, all the other ones will take care of themselves. If you can nail this one, you will understand what all of the law is about. Uh, This law is like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. This law is so significant that today, today, Whenever the Jewish community meets in a synagogue, they always start off every service with quoting this command. Uh, today, every Jewish boy and girl, the very first verse they will memorize, a section of verses they'll memorize, is this command. Uh, today, every practicing Jew, man and woman, will quote this verse twice. This is, this is the foundation. This is the bedrock. Matter of fact, you remember, Matthew 22, it says, a Pharisee came to Jesus. Now, the Pharisee is somebody who knows the Old Testament very, very well. You have to have Psalms memorized to be a Pharisee. I mean, he knows the, matter of fact, what the Pharisees do often is debate with each other, which of all the laws, 613 of them, is the most important one? And so a Pharisee comes to Jesus and says, which of the laws is the most important one? And he's probably not real real kind here. He's probably thinking, doesn't matter how Jesus answers this one, he's going to make somebody upset. But Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6. Turn over to Deuteronomy 6. And let's look at the context for this. Because this will set up... This is all of what Moses is saying throughout the whole book. If you can get the concepts from this this morning, if I can communicate them clearly. This is what he's saying throughout this whole book. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 1. He says, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So that your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. I mean, the commands are not a burden. They're not there to cause me trouble, running of rules. No, just the opposite. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. And then he starts in, this is the beginning of the, the Shema, the Jews call it, which is what they quote twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, why this is so significant, one of the gazillion reasons why this is so significant, is this is the first time in the Bible that we are commanded to love God. That's, that's unique. That's so unique. Because there were no other ancient peoples, no other ancient gods where you loved the gods. You don't love the gods. You fear the gods. You're, you're, you're nervous about You pay homage to the gods and you, you revere the gods, but you don't love the gods. But, but God is telling us, his people on the front end, I don't want to just set up rules for you to obey. I want a, a relationship with you, The greatest command is about being in a right love relationship with God. What God is, is saying is, I'm not interested in anybody obeying the, the rules. Just a cold, stark obedience. <clears throat> I'm interested in you obeying out of a love you have for me. And if in fact, you know, if in fact we look at God's word, it's just a bunch of doggone rules I got to keep, it's going to get old in a hurry. It's going to get old in a real real hurry. But when we look at it as it's a response of love. that's yeah, a whole different thing. He defines that a little bit. He says that I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul and with all your strength, heart. Uh, in the 21st century uh, deal, we view of uh, the heart a- as the seat of emotions, but not so much with with Hebrews. Um, love is not just an emotional thing for these guys. You know, today I love you with my whole heart. All no, right, don't tomorrow because the feelings go away. But is love was a Exclusive loyalty to. It was an obedience, it included the emotions, but it wasn't just that. It was an obedience to. It was a a taking the other person's desire and heart and putting them above mine. And so he says, Love them with all your heart. In, in, In Judaism, the heart was the center, it was like the command center for your life. It included all of your logic. It included your decision-making. It included... I mean, all of your priorities were made in the heart. All, all of your values. Uh, what you think about at night when you're trying to get to sleep. What you think about when nobody else is around. Uh, that's the focus of your heart. And what Moses is saying is, is this love for God needs to, needs to encapsulate your entire being, entire heart. And that would have been enough, but he takes it another step, doesn't he? He says, "And love him with all of your soul." That's the uh, storehouse for your passions and your desires. He says, "And love him with all your strength." This is an interesting word. Every other place this word is found in the Old Testament, it's an adverb. It means much, but Moses is turning this adverb into a noun. He's saying, love God with all of your much, with all of your muchness, with all of your muchness-est. He says, love him with everything you got. Love him very, 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 very much. You see, Moses is just hammering this, man. Every piece of your life needs to be uh, enveloped in this love of of God. And So look at verse 6. It's fascinating what he connects love to. He says, these commandments that I give you, are to be on your heart where you love God. Please don't miss this. Love for God and obedience to God are tied. They're tied real close. The Bible—you can't separate them. And we struggle. We hear people say, "I love God, but uh, that—that's that's alien here." He says, uh, "These commandments that I give you are to be upon your heart. Impress them on your children. Notice, talk about them when you're at home where it's private." And when you walk along the road where it's public, when you lie down, it's when you're very intimate, it's private. And when you get up, you go in places when you're public. Tie them as on symbols on your hand when you do things and everybody can see what you're doing, that's public. And and bind them on your foreheads, what you're thinking in your inner being when nobody knows, that's private. Uh, he says, write them on the door frames of your houses. That's private. And on your gates, public. He's saying, every aspect of your life, public, what private, it's got to be enveloped by this love for God. Think back. Did you ever go to a retreat? I was a youth pastor. I, must, I think I did 45 retreats in my days, just with teenagers. But have you ever gone on a retreat? Or maybe there was a special camp, Christian camp you went to. And, you know, it just was powerful, wasn't it? The people were singing songs about the Lord all day and the speakers, and hopefully they were halfway decent. But either way, you had conversations in your cabins and, and talking with your friends. And it was just like a little haven. That's what Israel was supposed to be. They didn't always achieve that. But today, and I'm not advocating living in a commune, but today we live out amongst by God's design. But God lets us know that when you do that, You can fall into idolatry. There's pieces of your... You can compartmentalize your relationship with God. I've got all these other things, and oh yeah, here's my God part. And he's saying here, no, God is over the whole whole thing. And so something you can't say, you just can't say, is I love God, but... You've heard people say this? I love God, but... I know what the Bible says I'm going to do something else anyway. I love God, really. Don't judge me. You don't know my heart. I really love God, but... I'm going to go do this other thing because that's what I think is right. I, I I love God. Certainly I do. And you're no one to tell me I don't. But I'm going to go do this. Can you imagine somebody saying to you, I love my spouse. I, I do. I want you to know, I really love my spouse. But I'm going to have as many other men or women or both that, that, that whenever I want physically, emotionally. I, I mean, I love my spouse and all, but... And I love my spouse, but I'm going to treat uh, him or her wrong, and I'll call them names and disrespect them and uh, uh, hurt them physically if I want to. But I do really love them. I want you to know that if someone said those things to us, wouldn't we kind of... Oh, no, 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 no. I don't mean to judge. I'm not a judger and all. But you don't love them. Because loving says you're putting their welfare above your own, you are obviously just doing the other thing. So it is, your actions are not loving. You can deceive yourself to to think that you love God and do something else. Because who wants to say I don't love God? That's a tough one to say. But reality is, if you're not obedient, didn't Jesus say something about this? You don't you don't you don't love Him. So He's saying you need to. What God's really driving home here is I want obedience, but it has to stem out of love for me. Please don't, don't. If you, the Christian life is a terrible life to live if you're doing it out of discipline and, and just, just forcing your way through it and, and you don't do it out of based on a love for God. It's, it's a challenge, but all obedience is to be an overflow of our love for Him. He then takes it another step in chapter 6, still in verse 20, it says, In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws that the Lord our God has commanded you? He's assuming, right, that at some point your kid's going to watch you. And if, in fact, you are obsessed with God, with a holy obsession, and, and if you are committed to honoring God with every part of your life and obeying him, your kids are going to say, Hang on, hang on, hang on why are we doing this again? They're not going to ask, you know, tell me all the laws. They already know them. They've heard them since the time they were born. But what they want to know is, why are we doing these again? My friends don't do these things. Don't you know how odd this makes us look? Don't you know how, how foolish this makes me look? We're not blending in here. Why are we doing this again? It's a good question. And look at the answer. Tell them, because the Lord said so. Nah, no, it doesn't say tell them because the Lord said so. If you try going down that road with them, you might hear the same answer that Pharaoh said. And who is the Lord that I should obey him? Right? This is what you're supposed to tell him. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. But the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders great and terrible terrible upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. Then the Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we're careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. and In other words, this is what you're supposed to tell them. You're supposed to say, a long time ago, we were in Egypt in a bad way. Man, we had no hope. We didn't even think about trying to overpower the taskmasters and Pharaoh. Are you serious? So we were beaten on a regular basis. We were dehumanized on a regular basis. Uh, life was was." was hopeless and and hard. It was terrible. And then for whatever reason, don't ask me why. I don't know why. God steps in. And he says, stand aside. And he tackles the bully Egypt. And he gets us out of there. And he looks at us and says, the reason why I'm pulling you out is because I love you. I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. And so all these rules that he set up, they're based on his love for us. They're, they're, they're fences, and, and if we go beyond the fences, we can get in trouble. but if we stay in with the fences that he set up, that's where we find our righteousness, our, our joy, the fulfillment of life that's why we, we, we obey these these laws. You connect the dots. God wants us to obey, but he wants us to obey because we love him, but He wants us to love him because he first Loved us. Does it say obey these laws so that you might be my people? No. We don't obey the things of God in order to earn points with him so that we're okay. No. They're already redeemed. We, we obey because we love him because he loved us. We obey because we're his people, not in order to become his people. So so Moses is saying to these guys, and this this message is going to go throughout Deuteronomy. When you get into the land, when you get into the land, y'all, you you have to obey God because you love him, because he loves you. You Fascinating. Eight times in the book of Deuteronomy, we're commanded to love God. Nine times in the book of Deuteronomy, we're told that God loves us. Deuteronomy is not a book of law. It's a book of love. And if you don't view it that way, it's going to become very heavy. If you try to go through life and do God's commands and do God's stuff without recognizing that that's secondary. First, it, it's I love him because he loved me. And if you love somebody, won't you try to obey them? Do what they ask? You know, they say that teenagers don't oh, don't disobey. They don't, they don't break relationship Or disobey the rules. They they break because of the relationship. Or lack thereof. If they really have a love relationship. You know what? They'll obey. They might roll their eyes. They might be momentary lapses. But they will obey. Because they've got that relationship. But if they don't have the relationship. If the love relationship isn't there. You know what? The laws are just going to get heavy after a while. And they're out of here. God is saying for us as well. Believers. Uh, the law is obeying him, listening to his word. It's going to get tough, but if we keep in mind how much he loves us, and, and our heart responds in love, you know what? The the obeying is going to be there. It's going to be. It's going to work. It's going to be. Take discipline sometimes. Be hard sometimes, of course. But if we keep it in that order, God's love for us, then we love him, and therefore we want to obey. Uh, it, it, obedience becomes much easier. Now, what Moses is going to do throughout the rest of this book. He rehashes the law, but he's got one message that keeps coming through: obey out of love for him because he loved you. Because if you do, blessings will follow. If you do, you get in this land that you're going into. If you want to want to survive in there, you want to succeed. You obey, and if you obey, blessings. But if you get into the land and you don't obey, curses. Uh, Chapter 29 of Deuteronomy, we see this most clearly. Now, this is uh, Moses' final speech starts in 29. Uh, This is his final, final words. And so he starts going through all the blessings and curses. We're not going to read the whole thing, but, but beginning in, excuse me, 28, he starts off, he says, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands that I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you. If you obey the Lord your God, you'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of of your livestock. The calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and kneading trough will be blessed and you'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. No, 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 It says blessings will come if you obey God out of your love for him because of his love for you. But if you don't, if you forget his love for you and then your love for him will wane and sooner or later those are done, curses. And so basically what he does for the rest of 28 is he takes these things and he just turns them on their head and they all become curses. And he adds a few extra on top of that. And here are some that he mentions. Verse 32. These are curses, remember, if they disobey. Your sons and daughters will be given to another nation. And you will wear out your eyes, watching for them day after day, powerless to lift a hand. Verses 36 and 37. If you, if you disobey, he says, The Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your fathers. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. You will become a thing of horror and an object of scorn and ridicule to all the nations where the Lord will drive you. Verse 41, he says, you will have sons and daughters, but you will not keep them because they will go into captivity. He's talking about exile. He, he knows. He's thinking back, Adam and Eve, and he wants these guys to remember. Just keep in mind Adam and Eve. They were in the land, the garden, but when they disobeyed God, they were booted, they were kicked out. Remember you guys, 40 years ago, you tried to get into the land, but because you disobeyed, you weren't allowed in. When you get into the land, don't be thinking, good, we're here, we're arrived, we can let down. Being in the land is a a blessing from God, a blessing for obedience. If you're not uh, obeying, expect to get kicked out. It's just the way things work. And then in chapter 30, and this is probably the the pinnacle chapter of, of Deuteronomy, I think the doctrine in chapter 30 is most crucial out of the whole Torah, other than maybe Genesis 3. Listen to what he says. Moses says, When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, what's he saying? Just before they, go, just before they leave the locker room, he's saying, You guys are going to lose. I just want you to know that. You're going out and you're going to fail and the Mr. Hyde thing is going to come back and you're going to get booted from the land into exile. I just want to let you know that. And you say, well, how in the world did Moses know that would happen? Well, a couple of reasons. One is uh, what he had just said, which was inspired from God. Those were not possibilities that was god 's word. that was what was going to happen. Secondly of all, he knew the people he just lived with them for forty years in the desert. They were complaining and causing trouble before he got them out of Egypt and then the whole time else they were gri- griping along the way. He knew that Mr. Hyde was very healthy in these guys, and that they weren 't suddenly going to change once they hit the promised land and if they continued going the way they go it was going to be a bad deal. And Deuteronomy chapter 9, I, I think this is fantastic. Uh, it, this is my own bad humor that thinks this is fantastic. But he says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out that their enemies before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. No, therefore that the Lord your God has not given you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. <laughs> you guys are awful. You think you're okay, you're not okay. I just want to let you know that. You think you're getting this because you're so high and mighty, you're not high and mighty. Just, just know your heart's a mess, and you're stubborn folk. You don't deserve anything. Just want to let you know that on the front end, make sure that's out of the way. Okay, we're clear now. Uh, your, your hearts are bad, and you're stubborn folk. Just make sure. You're, so he knows once they get into the land that they're going to repeat. And they're going to end up in exile. But he gives them some hope through a a challenge and a promise. It says in verse 2, And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you, even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens. That's, that's, that's incredible, isn't it? It doesn't matter how messed up your life is. It doesn't matter how scarred your, your sin has, has, has hurt your soul. It doesn't matter how deep you're in. It doesn't matter how many rules you've broken, how many relationships you, you've screwed up. It doesn't... You can't get so far away. Your life can't be so bad that the arm of God's grace can't reach you. That's what he's saying. I know you hear people say, my life is... I, I've done so many bad things. Listen, you're, you don't... Take too much credit, okay? Don't think your bad things are so bad that they're better than God's goodness is. It can't be. God can reach wherever you are. And there's nobody who's excluded. There's nobody who's excluded. And, and I love this. You know, how you, how do you get back? You have, to, you have to make all this restitution to God? No, 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 no. He says, he says return to the Lord. Now, the the... the uh, Word "return" sometimes we translate as, as uh, "repent," and you know, "repent" has got some bad connotations, doesn't it? You know, "repent, friend." You want to repent? Hellfire, brimstone, repent, repent. And, oh, it, it's like someone's trying to control me, and it just... Oh, but the word does not have that kind of connotation biblically. All it means is to turn around. That's all the word means: to turn around. You're going one direction, and... Maybe it's away from God and you recognize it and you stop and turn around and start coming back towards God. That's what the word means. And so, so this, is, this is great news. You don't have to suddenly even get there. You don't have to pay them all back. You don't have to, all you have to do is, is turn, repent, come back towards God. But the problem is this. He said you have to turn with all your heart. Now, if I'm not mistaken, we just read chapter 9, where Moses says their heart is in trouble. Jeremiah 17.9 uh, says that their heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. A uh, problem with our, our heart is Mr. Hyde hides in our heart. And so to love God completely, fully, with all of my heart I might want to, I might try, but I just... So I repent, I turn and I come back to God. And then, you know what happens? Things start going well for me and well, maybe I'll just return and go going back this direction again until the consequences become so hot that I come back to God. And then after a little while, I turn and go back. And we are just a, a moral revolving door. We go back and forth, back and forth. This is how we live our life, don't we? we? I struggle, I fail, I fail. I come back to God, I fail. I pray and I'm doing better for a couple... Then I fail again. This is w- what we, we do. And so they cannot. Look at verse 6. This is the promise, and this is incredible. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your descendants so that, get this, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your souls and live. In other words, you cannot love him unless God steps in. What Moses is introducing here, this is this is very critical to the progression of the story of the Bible. What Moses is introducing here is a theme that will continue on. Jeremiah and Ezekiel will say, "That's right, you need a, a new heart, and God will give it to you." In John chapter four, John uh, Jesus talks to Nicodemus and says, "Unless you are born again, it's a new heart." Uh, Paul is going to say that when you come to him, then old things are passed away. All things are new. You've got to have a a new heart. When when you do, he says, the Lord is going to circumcise your heart. Now, you don't want to talk about circumcision in the morning. Sunday morning, I don't want to talk about it publicly. Um, But, uh, let me say this, and hopefully you all connect dots if you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, It was a Jewish ritual. Uh, for males, where they underwent a surgical procedure to remove a piece of skin, and you say, Ugh. you say, well, yeah, this was a sign of the covenant between them and God. And you might be thinking, for crying out loud, can't they have a tattoo? Can't they do a hairdo? Can't they wear something different? Why do they? Why there? This is this is yucky. This is this is painful. This is this is bloody. This is personal. That's the point. That's what he's saying. You know, it's fascinating. The, the Hebrew, maybe you've, you've heard, "We're going to cut a deal. Let's go cut a deal." Well, in Hebrew, to cut a covenant, the word "cut" is is the word "lacerate." And in Genesis fifteen, when God cuts the covenant with 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 Abraham, he literally cuts animals. They, they bleed. They, there's there's blood. Uh, when I was a little boy, I remember one of my friends. We were going to be blood brothers. You ever just, so I, this was difficult. I was a little, this, I couldn't do this today, but, I, but it was really difficult then. You poke yourself till you bleed, and they poke themselves till they bleed. And then you put your fingers together, and, and you're thinking, my blood is flowing into them, and their blood is flowing into me, and we, it's a serious, serious relationship. I, by the way, uh, especially kids, don't try this at home. Don't do this. Lots and lots of reasons why not do this today. You could get sick and die. Don't 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 do this wrong. But at the time. I didn't do this with everybody. This wasn't a thing I did. But such a special friend. Such a special covenant. I didn't know that that would be the word. But we're making with each other. And this is a very special, sacred thing. This is at the the, the depth of their... how The greatest... Personal uh, intimacy in this world is a sign to them that their greater love yet is with God. It's a sign to them, to the heads of the household, that our our relationship is is with Him. Of who we are, my identity, that all my offspring are are His. Now, symbols, uh, interesting things. Symbol uh, doesn't just necessarily change what's going on inside, right? I mean, uh, um, someone wearing a cross around their neck does not necessarily mean that every decision they make is going to honor Jesus. The symbol can be nice, it can remind you, but it can be a problem as well. It was with the Jews, they would start thinking that because we're circumcised, because we have the the symbol, we're in. And what God is saying here is, there has to be a circumcision of heart that only God can give you, that God can perform. It's a, it's a removal of something from your heart. Maybe a removal of the Mr. Hyde thing. That thing that separates you from God. You say, well, because here's my guess. There are some of us this morning who have been trying to do the Christian religion, maybe your whole life, but you don't have a circumcised heart. And you're wondering, well, how in the world do I get that? Well, you don't pray for it. it doesn't, it's not how it works. Let me give you a spoiler alert for the story. Uh, Years later, Jesus, God's son, comes on the scene. And as he's crucified on the cross, he's cut off from the father. It's a bloody, bad deal. But at that point, he takes our Mr. Hyde, and he dies for those things. And if you were just to focus on the cross, and you focus on what God the father through his son did for you, the gift that He gave to you, and then you respond, you turn by saying, "I give my life to You in gratitude of what You've done for me." That is the new heart you're getting. That it doesn't cost money. It doesn't require anything, but it's it starts there. As we think about that I'm guessing there might be some folk who don't have a circumcised heart a new heart I wanna, just want to let you know this morning you can uh, in your own heart voice that to God thanking him for sending his son to die for you and uh, committing your life to him I've been going the wrong way and I don't want to go that way anymore but maybe there are folk here too this morning that have a new heart they've trusted Christ but you know you've forgotten all about it Re- really and you, you're, you're you're doing the, the revolving door thing or maybe you're just walking away and message for you is to turn I gotta, let me let's look at this chart real quick because because this is real significant uh, verses 1 through 4 tell us our part we have to turn we have to turn uh, if we think God is just going to zap us and eradicate all, all of all of my Hyde instincts and all of my temptations and all of my anything, it's not going to happen that way. Uh, even though if you know him, your Mr. Hyde is dead on one level, you still have vestiges of him there. And death, a fascinating thing, when you die, it's like you pass through a filter that removes everything else out, all of the Mr. Hyde out, so we will spend eternity 100% pure. The temptations are gone, the, the desire for evil, it's, it's, it's all gone. Mr. Hyde is completely laid to rest at that point. But maybe now, you, you've been hoping that God would just zap you. Well, he's not going to do it. He will do his part, but you have to do yours as far as you need to turn. And maybe some here this morning might need to return to him because you've been going the wrong way. And you need to hear this as well. You're not going to be able to do all that on your own. I can't wait till we get to the New Testament. We talk Romans 8, we talk about the Spirit. But uh, you have to lean into him. God, I want to come back. Would you please help me? Would you give me the power? Would you help me to return? And he will. He will. Deuteronomy. Great book. Just before they get into the land. Here's the reality. You need to obey. You need to obey because, listen to his word, because you love him. No other reason. Don't try to do it for any other reason. Because he loves you. And if you do, God promises that in our life, as we live it, There'll be a spiritual boatload of blessings that we will have the new life that Jesus came for and promised. Would you pray with me?